0: You're listening to the 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. And today we are in John chapter 8. We're going to try our hardest to do two chapters today. We'll see how that goes. We're going to try to do chapter 8 and 9. Um, but I'm Andrew Kingsley, and co-podcasting with me is Drew Kaiser. And we are the ministers at the Asheville Road Church of Christ. And we're trying something new today. Trying this Periscope app that seems to be popular with the kids on Twitter. Yeah. Right We're, now we have zero watchers. Yeah. Which but, makes
1: us less self conscious.
0: But we look really good on this camera.
1: You look good. <laughs> I look like I've been around the block a few times. But uh, yeah, I don't know if we'll do that. Um, and it makes absolutely no sense or practical. It's of no practical use to people listening.
0: Later. It's just...
1: Everybody's listening later.
0: Yeah. It's just a fun gadget. I guess
1: we're throwing it out there so that, you know, the next time you listen to the podcast, or, no, how does this work? It's such a weird world. You have to follow our Twitter feed. If you're following on Twitter, at the 66podcast is the handle, then Mm -hmm. you can watch and it'll tweet when we're live. And uh, I know you're just dying to to Mm -hmm. look at us while we do this. So, if you're at a place where you can do this and you have this app and you don't have a real job Uh, you might (laughs) be able to to catch us doing this on video if you like that kind of thing Uh, but we're not sure we're going to use it we'll see this is kind of new technology and I'm not sure how it's going to be used out in the wide wide world yeah it starts getting a little weird out there we're backing out of it pretty quickly so yep we'll just uh, see how it goes um James Spann though uses this stuff when he does well, his broadcasts. James Spann, and uh, he's you know, uh, for our out of Birmingham area on listeners,
0: James Spann is the man here.
1: He's a local hero.
0: Yeah, he's the weather guy, but he is like everybody knows James Spann <laughs> within like two hours of Birmingham.
1: <laughs>
0: to it, uh, the whole state, man. Okay, the whole
1: state. All right, to John. Now, we have been following the basic outline for John of his prologue, public ministry, private ministry, passion ministry, and postscript. And we are dead in the middle of his public ministry, but the part of his public ministry where he's facing a lot of opposition. He's going to get some strong opposition this week as he did last week when we studied chapter 7. We start out with this little story. Well, I should say this. The, the, the focus of our reading is going to be the idea of light. Because we have mm-hmm. that I am statement of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. But if you look at chapters 8 and 9 together, the main thing that ties all of this together is the concept of light. Even this little controversial story in the first 11 verses of chapter 8. Mm -hmm. We're going to put a heading over that called The Hope of Light. And it's a story about a woman who was caught in adultery. Not just accused of adultery, but caught in the act of adultery. And uh, they called Jesus over, not because they were really sincerely trying to figure out what to do with this woman, but they were testing him. And they basically wanted to ask him a question Which is, what should we... This woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses commanded us to stone her. What do you say? And the reason they were asking him and testing him with that particular problem is because according to Jewish law, it appeared that they must stone her. Mm -hmm. But they lived under Roman law. That was the law of the land at that time, which prohibited them from taking actions into their own hands. And as we'll learn in the case of Jesus... They would have to bring her before a Roman court to execute. The Sanhedrin no yeah. longer had the powers of capital punishment. That had been taken away from them. So they thought they had him in a catch-22. If he said, don't stone her, he's mm-hmm. violating the law of Moses. If he tells them to stone her, then they can bring him before the courts of Rome and have him tried and convicted of mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know a crime. Yeah. And so uh, they think they've got him and uh, he does something really strange. He bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued asking him, and finally he stood up and he said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That is the hope of light. And Mm -hmm. we have so much to say about that in the think section and in the apply section that I'm going to leave it alone for now. But you can see the hope shining through there he does not condemn her. Of course, there's an argument to be made that her sins have already condemned her. And as John said in John 3, Jesus did not come on a, met- on a, on a mission of condemnation, but on a mission of salvation. But we'll leave that there and move on to the second part of the outline today, which is the judge of light. Uh, now this brings in some aspects of the light metaphor or motif that you see throughout the book of John John in his letters and in his gospel account emphasizes light as a as a powerful image of goodness righteousness there are two aspects of light that he seems to use a lot in the gospel according to John and that is exposure and illumination we saw the exposure part in John 3:19 and following where he talks about how those who do works of darkness don't like the light because the light exposes them. And uh, that's kind of the exposure of the judgment of the light. But uh, here, we're going to see more of it in terms of the illumination of light. and uh,
0: We've definitely seen this motif of light even at the very beginning when he mentioned you know, he said, in him was life, and that life was the light of the oh, world. Yeah, yeah, And he said, John came to bear witness about the light, and this is all within the first ten verses. Uh, and he says, the That's light exactly came into right. the world. And then we talked about Nicodemus uh, coming to Jesus at night, and we mentioned, so you can go back and listen to our uh, podcast on Nicodemus for this, but we talked about, you know, the question of, was there any imagery there of Nicodemus coming to him at night? In the darkness, is there any kind of a play there with the darkness? Uh, for more on that, you can go listen to that episode. But we've already seen this motif of light a few times in John.
1: Now, the key verse in this section on Jesus as the judge of light is verse 26. And this is what verse 26 says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. This is where Jesus really begins to expose his enemies. So we see you know, the illumination part of light and the exposure part of light in this section of scripture where he is the judge. So he judges his enemies in a number of ways. Number one, he judges them to be in the dark. Uh, he is apparently located in the treasury, which is in the court of women of the temple into which both men and women were allowed to go because while the Jews did not want women to go into certain parts of the temple, they did want their money, and so they allowed them to go into the part where the treasury was. And this was made up of 13 trumpet-shaped collection boxes around the room for contributions, and there was a candelabra that hung from the ceiling. And it was in this setting that he gives his second I am statement in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Probably that candelabra was hanging there and, mm-hmm. you know, it was an illustration of what he, was, what he was pointing out. And so he tells them, I'm the light of the world. And the Jewish leaders have a response, which is critical, as you would expect. It's a twofold response. Number one, they say, who is your witness? That's verse 13. And Jesus responds that according to the law, two witnesses were enough, and he had two, himself and his father. And then they say in verse 19, well, where is your father? And uh, some have guessed, and I think this is a really interesting theory, that they were making a charge of illegitimacy. And, uh, you know, they say that later on in this chapter, they say in verse 41, just out of nowhere, they say, we were not born of sexual immorality. And then it's not in context or anything. He's just talking to them about something else. And they just come in with this, well, we were not born of sexual immorality. And, mm-hmm. you know, here in verse 19 where they say, hey, where's your father? Uh, this may be a reference back to a misinterpretation of the virgin birth. Yeah. You know, they didn't buy this miracle business, they thought, well, Jesus. You know, it was an illegitimate child. Mary had committed adultery, and Joseph tried to cover it up with this story about her conceiving a child by the Holy Spirit and being a virgin at conception. Uh, it's not, you know, really explicit, but it's very interesting that they are saying these things, and we guess that possibly that was. But anyway, his response to them was, If you knew me, you would know my father also. I want to yeah. come back to that. And his connection to the light of the world in a moment. But first of all, he exposes or he judges his enemies to be in the dark, and he is the light. Number two, he judges his enemies to be perishing. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They were perishing because of sin. And the wages of sin is death. Number three, he judges them to be enslaved to sin. Look at verse 31. He says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they said, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is is a slave to sin so he exposes them as slaves not freemen they're slaves to sin and then number four he judges them to be children of the devil he simply says in verse 44 you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning he's drawing some parallels between them and the devil the apple doesn't fall far from the tree here He was a murderer. Mm -hmm. They will become murderers. They probably have murdered others before Christ. But he was a murderer from the beginning. And has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So they also tell lies. They're murderers and they're liars. And that's where the charge uh, or the exposure of the judgment that your children of the devil comes from. And then... uh, Finally, he judges his enemies to be unbelievers. And that's verses 48 and following. Uh, they say, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So to them, they just cussed him out twice. They called him a Samaritan and they called him demon-possessed. Yeah. And uh, he said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now it's very important to see how they're bringing up Abraham yeah. as the best person that has ever lived. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, That's very important to understand what he says next. And uh, they're saying, you know, Abraham has died, so how dare you say that you can give people the possibility of eternal life? Mm-hmm. And, he, and they ask him, verse 53, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who, are you, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So he's claiming to be eternal. He's claiming that he lived it's the same claim as John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He lived before his birth, and he appeared to Abraham in some way, for Abraham saw him. and Many people mm-hmm. make this the basis of their idea that the angel of the Lord who pops up here and there throughout the, um, the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Christ. And this is the angel of the Lord who came with two other angels to visit Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. And when the other two went down to Sodom to get Lot, this one stayed behind and spoke as Yahweh, spoke you know, as if he were Yahweh. And uh, Abraham bargained with him over the fate of Sodom. And yeah. this is what Jesus is referring back to here when he said, Abraham saw my day. And uh, so the Jews, who are very dense here, say in verse 57, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, we've talked about the seven I am statements Mm -hmm. of the Gospel of John. This would be an eighth statement. And it's not usually included in the seven I am statements because they all have a predicate. I am fill in the blank. In this mm-hmm. case, I am the light of the world. We've already seen what was the first one that we saw. This was the second one. So uh, the first one, I am the bread of life, John yeah. 6. So here, the second one, I am the light of the world. But in John eight fifty eight, he simply says, I am. And the reason they pick up stone, or I didn't read that, but in verse 59, they pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The reason they did that is, I am is the name for God. It goes it all the way been, back.
0: Yeah, it would have been horrible <clears throat> blasphemy in the eyes of the Jews. If he were not God, Jesus. it yes, would be blasphemy. true. Yeah. That's what they were thinking.
1: Yes, to them, he had blasphemed because yeah. he claimed to be God. Now, he claimed to be God in other ways that we've pointed out. Um, And in other Gospels, he's forgiving sins. That's a claim to be God. This isn't the only place. And at his trials, he will claim to be the Son of God, which is a a divinity claim. Mm -hmm. But here's a very clear example to those who want to say Jesus never claimed to be God. A very clear example that he was claiming to be God and that people understood that he was claiming to be God. And it's based on these kinds of claims that C.S. Lewis made his famous trilemma that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. No, yeah. Because he, you can't just say that he was a good moral teacher because that's not all that he did. He didn't just give ethical statements and you know go around giving truths to help people build better lives. He went around saying, I am the Son of God. And because he did that, he was either lying about it to try to get power or he really believed that he was the Son of God and was just delusional, or he was who he claimed to be, the Lord, which is, of course, what you and I mm-hmm. believe about him. And that brings us to chapter 9. And The reason we're doing chapters 8 and 9 together is because I think they should be linked together due to the miracle or sign that's worked in chapter 9. Uh, it is a sign that involves giving sight to the blind, which is... A form of light. And uh, we call this third section the source of light. You know, there there's abstract light and there is created light. In the beginning, the first thing God created out of chaos was light. He said, let there be light, and it was so. And here, Jesus is doing the same thing, creating light in a man's eyes. Because mm-hmm. everything we see is basically light bouncing off of stuff. So this is the creative act of light once more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's look at this story here and tie it into his statement, I am the light of the world. Uh, Jesus and his disciples encountered this man. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, they had the same philosophy as Job and his friends: the uh, the law of retribution, that suffering is evidence of sin. So you know, here you have a blind man. So obviously he sinned. Who sinned? Uh, the man or his parents? You know, we can sum this up pretty simply. And he says, "No, no, uh, all suffering is not due to sin. All disease is not because of something bad somebody did, but." This man is in this condition so that God can be glorified through through this condition. So he repeats the I am statement of chapter 8 verse 12 and verse 5 of chapter 9, which is another reason we're handling these together. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And uh, then he works what is the sixth sign in the catalog of miracles in the gospel according to John. Verse 6 says that having said these things... He spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Um. You know, A lot of people want to ask, why is he making mud with spit, mm-hmm. putting it on his eyes? And usually we would talk about that during the think section, but... I think it moves the narrative along a little bit if I point out that I don't believe that he felt that that action was necessary to the restoration of the man's sight. Mm -hmm. I think he was trying to draw the Pharisees out once more, this being the Sabbath, and saliva being considered medicinal, and mud being considered medicinal. Mm -hmm. And he was creating an eye salve so that he could be accused of practicing medicine on the Sabbath hmm. and have another challenge with them about that. Hmm. Um, again, in temp- John's typical fashion, he doesn't tell us that's what's going on. He just tells us what happened and leaves it up to us to discuss it. Mm-hmm. But that's what it seems like's going on here to me. Because in other, he did, every time he healed a blind man, he didn't do
0: this. Yeah, he certainly could have just said, Be healed. And yeah, been he didn't have to use the mud. I don't. He didn't yeah, want to.
1: And I could spit and make mud all day long, put it on your eyes, and you wouldn't I'm see. I'm still going really to need to wear contacts. Afterwards. I
0: think so. I probably going to need a better prescription after that.
1: And a uh, and an antibiotic because yeah. I just put saliva and mud in your eyes. Um. So that's probably what was going on. Now they that's start interrogating this man the Pharisees do after he was healed. And uh, the people were divided over what would happen. Some were open-minded and saw that he was a good man, and the Pharisees insisted that Jesus was not from God, but that he was a sinner because he wasn't keeping the Sabbath. And the man that he healed, he testified that he was a prophet. And so the Jews, they weren't convinced that he had been born blind even though many had already told them that they had seen him sitting and begging. So they called for his parents and they start interrogating the parents, and the parents says, say, He is of age, go ask him. Now they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. So they mm-hmm. were putting all this off on their poor blind son. But he doesn't back down from a fight. I'm I'm impressed with this uh this blind man as as much as I am with Jesus in this, so They go up to him and they say, verse 24, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he said, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they have met their match in this guy. He is not backing down from them. Mm -hmm. And uh, he he is really giving them a hard time. It continues, verse 26, they say, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) I think that's hilarious. Yeah. That uh, he knows good and well they're not wanting to become his disciples. Yeah. But he's getting real sarcastic with them. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man... We do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Now this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. And By the way, a lot of miracles are recorded in the Old Testament, but none in which a blind man has been given his sight. Mm -hmm. So Moses, you know, they're they're leaning back on Moses, and Jesus has just done something Moses nor any of the prophets had ever done. Mm Mm-hmm. So he says, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he listens to him. And uh, uh, never since, this is still the blind man speaking, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and and you would teach us, and they cast him out. So they fell back on that law of retribution, threw him out of the synagogue. But Jesus, this is when Jesus decides to go and find him after all of this has happened. He doesn't know who Jesus is. It's not like the Samaritan woman where he's sitting there and it's, he's there with her throughout the whole experience until she realizes he is the Messiah. He heals yeah. him, disappears, and then after he's been through all this, he returns. Mm-hmm. And uh, he asks the man, verse 34, do you believe in the Son of Man? He said who is he sir that I may believe in him Jesus said you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you He said lord i believe and he worshiped him Jesus said for judgment i came into this world and those who do not now this is this is going to get a little confusing Let's see if you can follow the figure of speech that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind some of the pharisees heard him Say these things and asked, are we also blind? And he said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And before we conclude this, let me see if I can analyze that a little bit. He must, in verse 39, he talks about those who do not see. And mm-hmm. uh, that must be those who do not see by According to the evaluation of the Pharisees, like the man who is blind, mm-hmm. he doesn't see. Um, or those who do not see, according to their own evaluation, they realize their ignorance mm-hmm. and that they need direction and guidance, so they come to the light.
0: Yeah, similar to the the whole thing that he says in Matthew about he didn't call uh, or he didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Right, and it's not the healthy that need a doctor, uh, but the sick. right, Same this time.
1: so those who do not see would be the sick, yeah, and the sinners, yeah, that know they need help. Mm-hmm. Now those who see are those who see by their own evaluation, like the Pharisees, the self-righteous. they think that they can see, yeah, and so they they ask, Jesus, are we also blind?" So they're saying, "Are you saying that we are ignorant?" that we're in the dark, and he responds using the language the way that he did in verse 39. If you were blind, that is, if you realized that you needed a, an instructor, if you realized that you were in the dark, if you were penitent, then you would have no guilt because you'd be listening to me. Mm-hmm. But now that you say we see by your own evaluation, in other words, because you are proud and self-righteous, your guilt remains because you won't listen to me. So I think that's how to read that. Yeah, those who are blind, or those who are blind, according to their own evaluation, they realize their their sin and their need. Those who are uh, not blind, as that is by their own evaluation. All right, we better wrap the first section up. We'll be right back with some deeper thoughts. we come back we're going to look at uh, mostly this first part of chapter 8 because that's the part that people have so many questions about they have questions about the passage itself and then several things that happen inside of the passage so we're going to we're going to talk about that a little bit with much trepidation mm-hmm. i mean i'm a little nervous talking about this because i'm not sure people will understand where we're coming from as we explain what has to be explained in the uh, in the text and in the footnotes of your Bibles that you may have, if you're reading from something other than a King James translation. Um, now, most people, when they get a New American Standard Bible, an ESV, an NIV, or you know one of the more modern, solid, mainstream translations, they will see something in front of chapter seven, verse fifty-three of John. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include John seven fifty three through John eight eleven. Basically, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple other cases in the Bible where that kind of thing happens also. And so people scratch their heads and they say, you know, these new translations, are they trying to take something out of the Bible? And uh, I don't trust these new translations because... They're you know removing parts of the Bible. Really, what they're doing is trying to give you as much information as possible. Mm-hmm. And the King James was translated from a a limited scholarship uh, scholarship, limited manuscript base. Just a few manuscripts that were very late were all that the King James translators had available to them. In 1611, before the age of modern science and archaeology. Since then, as you would expect, we have discovered hundreds and thousands of manuscripts supporting the Old and New Testaments. And the best ones are the ones that are complete and that are old. And the best ones, the five best Greek manuscripts that we have, uh, omit this passage of scripture. The first manuscript that contains it dates back to 400 or 500 A.D., which is pretty early, but not as early as those those first five. Yeah. The first church father who quotes it is 12th century. That that's way down the road. Yeah, Because the church fathers were quoting a lot of scriptures, and uh, there's some internal problems. Um, look at John 7:52. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now read that into John eight twelve. Again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. So it you know it could go right after John eight eleven, but it also flows nicely from John seven fifty two, which makes us suspicious. Another problem is that it's what's known in textual criticism as a floater passage, meaning that it is located in various places in John, depending on which manuscript you're looking at. And in one manuscript, it's in the book of Luke. It is uh, in Luke chapter 21, verse 38. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's not a great manuscript to follow, but another problem is there are several key words in it that are new to John. And John has... You know, he sticks to a very limited, simple vocabulary. That's a red flag. So what do we do with that? Well, first of all, I want to say there's no cause for concern that we don't have God's inspired Word. Uh, Listen to this manuscript base. Scholars have found over 5,700 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament alone. That's not including the Old
0: Testament. Yeah. 5,700. What's the next... Was Homer like the next most um, well? Wait a minute, because that's the just the... the
1: strictly the Greek manuscripts. When you add yeah. the Church Fathers and the early translations to that, mm-hmm. which I think should be added to that, because they're very old. Some of the Church Fathers go back to second century. Their quotations of it. When you add those in, we have over twenty five thousand manuscripts. That I think should be included as the manuscript basis for the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the exact number on Homer's Iliad, but I've heard it's it compared. Like, it's like six hundred.
0: Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And some of them are very late. Yeah, I was just reading about that earlier today, and it's somewhere right around six hundred. I want to say it was five hundred and something.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not more than seven hundred. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you've got the Iliad, which is never called into question about whether, was that word really there? Did Homer really write that? Nobody ever says that about the Iliad. Nobody worries about it. Of course, the Iliad's not telling us matters of heaven and hell. Yeah. But you only have 600 some odd manuscripts to back it up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: On the other hand, with the New Testament alone, 25,000 manuscripts to back it up yeah just to let you know this is the most authenticated book in it in antiquity. Now, what about that little paragraph that we've been discussing? John may not have written that passage, but there is a widespread conviction among among both liberal and conservative scholars that this narrative represents a factual episode in the ministry of Jesus Christ, yeah and here i like a quote by dr leon morris who said throughout the history of the church it has been held that held that whoever wrote this section this little story is authentic yeah. and i agree with that i think that jesus did this this really happened i you know i don't know whether john himself wrote it at the time that he wrote the rest of the book of john <clears throat> but I think it belongs. And uh, that brings us to some of the other things yeah. we're going to talk about here.
0: Um, I think for a believing Christian, it's just as simple as if it wasn't supposed to be there, it wasn't. Or it wouldn't be there. If it was not supposed to be there, it would not be there. Yeah, It's as simple as that for people with faith. Now, people that don't have faith or that need a little bit more of an answer, there's more there, and we just covered it. But I think on the front end of that is Hey, I mean that's a really simplistic attitude, but I think it's right too, you know. Well, I,
1: I think it worries a lot of people because they have misconception about the Bible, a very superstitious idea that that this leather bound King James just fell out of the sky one day <laughs> yeah. and it was had smoke coming off of it and then we just started Light photocopying it, it and yeah. you know, there's no but but you know, the Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years yeah. by 40 different authors or more than that. Mm-hmm. And so these it is 66 books. And uh, the inspired part of the Bible are the, what is called the original autographs. That was inspired. But we don't have the first papyrus or scroll that John mm-hmm. wrote. We have copies right. of that. And they were hand copied in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And if you it, you start worrying about that, but remember we have thousands of copies, and it's pretty easy to find out what the real one is, what the true words are, when out of these thousands of copies you have fifty variants. Well, the other thousands that are all exactly the same on that passage have got to be the the true passage. Yeah. Sure. somebody you know here and there through the centuries is going to do something weird, make a mistake, but you've got 25,000 of these to compare. Yeah. Not to belabor the point. Now, what else do we need to talk about with that little story about the woman caught in adultery?
0: I've got one that doesn't really matter, but you might. it's really interesting. What was he riding in the dirt, or writing in the sand, or wherever he was? Well, what do you... What do you think he was writing
1: on the ground? I have no idea. He bent over
0: and he wrote with his finger on the ground. I have no idea.
1: You I don't have... have any guesses? Well, I don't want to make a guess. Cause, Why not? That's I mean, all we can do. I mean, I mean... That that should be the first answer is all we can do on this... Is
0: guess. ...is speculate. Yep. So go, go to town. Go for it. I don't, I don't even have a good guess. Whatever it was, I'm sure it was like to where when they looked at it, when the Jews looked at it, they were like, oh, okay. Well, you know. it
1: seemed to be a part of his strategy for saving this woman's life. Yeah. Now, here, here's a couple of possibilities. One very slim possibility is that Jesus did not know what he was going to say. So he's just giving, collecting his thoughts and stalling mm-hmm. for a minute. Uh, I don't think you really needed that kind of thing. So yeah, and toss that's, that off. Yeah, that's I think that's ridiculous. Another idea is that he, and this is what I've heard in Bible classes, is that he was writing sins. You know, John has emphasized throughout the Gospel that Jesus knew what was in man's heart. So he's writing specific sins that they've uh, the committed. The standing there, you know. Cheated in cards. Yeah. Uh, Gambler. Yeah. Um, Adulterer.
0: That would make sense for verse 7, but I mean, there's no no way of knowing. That is something I would want to know. Like, I would love to go back and stand there and watch that and see what was going on.
1: Now, wrote, the word wrote may discount this third idea. Which is that he was just doodling <laughs> and uh, just giving them just slowing them down a little bit, you know giving them a moment to think about what they were about to do. Yeah. because mob mobs, and we've all seen it, mobs are capable of things that the individuals in the mob would never do. right here we got a mob mentality and you slow it down a little bit. And there was a police officer who was able to do this in Ferguson on one occasion where he walked in there and he, and he got people talking. And I remember a story about that, how he was able to slow him down a little bit, and that was the way he would stop the violence on that particular day. The next day it was back business as usual. Yeah. But he had said some things that got them to stop and think and talk. We don't know what he was doing. But it's interesting that after he did it, he was able to say, he who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Mm -hmm. Okay? That brings us to the next thing. Was Jesus breaking the law of Moses here? Right. In order to keep from breaking the Roman law? Because we Mm -hmm. pointed out in the first section that that was a test. If he had done what they said, he would have kept the law of Moses but broken Roman law. If he had not done what they said, he would have kept he would have broken the Jewish law and kept the Roman law. Mm-hmm. So they thought they had him in a catch 22. So was, was that the case? Did he break the law of Moses? And that's a concern because you know the Bible teaches that Jesus never sinned. Well, I guess we have to just look at what he said, what his judgment was on it. And his judgment was, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Which is, actually, we were talking over the break, and we found out that's following the law of Moses. Do you have the Deuteronomy passage?
0: Uh, I've got another one in chapter 20, but we were in chapter 17, right? Well, yeah. um, Yeah, it's here in verse... 17.7. Read that. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst.
1: Okay, so basically that teaches that the witnesses of the crime, after somebody's been convicted and capital punishment has been issued as the sentence, the witnesses of the crime are to be the first to begin the execution by stoning cast the first stone. So he said, alright, you caught her in adultery. Let's have that witness come up and be the first to cast the stone. Now he added, the one without sin. Now it may have been the case that every person there who was emotionally capable of killing a woman had also been committing adultery. I mean, it's very possible in that culture, I would not be surprised. Yeah. Um, I want to know Or they really didn't want to do it, and you know, but the fact that he didn't cast a stone was not breaking the law. He said, "Carry out the law, but remember this part of the law, and they're the ones that did not keep the law of Moses. Jesus mm-hmm. kept the law of Moses, but she lived. It's genius. That's one of the reasons why I think the story has to be authentic. Because yeah. it's so clever. I, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And it, it and it requires intricate knowledge of the law of Moses that very few people possessed.
0: Yeah. And I wonder where the man was for all this. For some reason, yeah. I'm under the impression that... Well, I think we know where he was. <laughs> he got some... Maybe hiding somewhere, I don't know. But Well, she was
1: caught in the act,
0: right? Okay, so they they So they knew who him, he was. Did yeah.
1: But you know how women were treated in those days.
0: But they were both supposed to I mean I've got Deuteronomy twenty two, twenty two, Leviticus twenty and verse. All right, 10. read one of those. This one says if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus 20, verse 10 says the same thing. Both so
1: they weren't they weren't following the law of Moses here. Right. It would have been a crime to do what they suggested. So we need to back up from what we were saying anyway. If he, you know, that he was in a catch-22, and if he followed them, he'd be following the law of Moses. No. If he followed them, he would have been breaking the law of Moses because they did not have both the transgressors There before the Sanhedrin to to
0: make this official. Right. Um, Which is, uh, and that brings up the whole, I mean, I guess, part of this pardon. What do you think about the pardon here that Jesus gives to her, saying, you know, go your way and sin no more?
1: Well, is it, is it, you know, that's how everybody reads it. Or he says, what does he say?
0: He says, neither do I condemn you. So he doesn't condemn her for what she's done.
1: It doesn't mean he pardoned her.
0: I mean, I know he had the capability and the power to forgive sins, but it's interesting that...
1: But it doesn't say that he... You know, remember we're reading John here, and I know that we just, you know, it's in brackets or whatever, but um, remember John chapter uh, 3, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Condemned already. Jesus came into the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. So this woman is condemned already. It doesn't, she doesn't need Jesus to condemn her. Hmm. He came on a mission of salvation. And so he's still coming from that perspective that he came into a condemned world and he is the only hope of being saved. Mm-hmm. And so that he gives her that hope there saying, go and from now on sin no more. And if she, upon belief in him, went on her way and sinned no more, putting her trust in him, then yeah. she would have been saved. Yeah. But I don't think at that moment he was forgiving her sins in the way that he did the thief on the cross or... Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I think the whole other the, the whole theme of
1: that we read about
0: going on to what he's what he's about to talk about, you know, about healing or, uh, you know, about the light and where the light, who the light is for, and what he says to the Jews, um, what he says to them about the light. And I think it's interesting to note that he here he is not condemning a woman caught in adultery. But he is condemning these guys that are, that have what's behind the law messed up. Like this woman had probably both of, you know, she was in sin for whatever reason. We don't know. But it's interesting that the people that Jesus gets upset with, he doesn't get upset with this woman, but he does get upset with the Jews uh, because they claim to know God, but they don't. You know, they act like they can see, but they can't. I think it's.
1: But they're the ones that are trying to trap him too.
0: Yeah, yeah, they are. So they're they're definitely. But you're
1: right. That seems to be self righteousness and pride seem to be taken more seriously. Well, he is more aggressive towards those kinds of sins than the sins of adultery, prostitution. Uh, unethical tax collection and things that were considered immorality by the Jewish society Uh, and I think it's because those people knew they were bad And this gets back to the analogy of the blind that makes sense they knew they were blind so they went to the physician to see again but Mm -hmm. the other the sins of pride and arrogance have a blinding effect on their people where they don't they think they 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 see They think they see. That makes sense. Uh, so, time for another break. We'll come back and tie it up with some practical applications of need. Can we learn from John chapters 8 and 9 a lot? We can learn a lot, and we're going to limit our applications to, to this concept of Jesus as the light of the world. First of all, Jesus is exposing light. And we brought this up before, but it goes all the way back. John started this imagery in John 3 of Jesus as the exposing light. In verse 19, when he said, this is the judgment the light is coming to the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, people who don't want to do better, they scatter like roaches when the light is turned on. They like the darkness Because they don't want the light to show them who they really are, Mm -hmm. and you know that makes people. That's what makes us as preachers and teachers want to back off of preaching about sin. That's why Joel Osteen says, or Osteen says Mm -hmm. that he's not going to talk about sin because when you talk about sin, people scatter. And that guy's all about bringing the crowds in. So you don't you don't bring that kind of harsh light in. You just give a little soft 40-watt bulb to them, and it warms them, but it doesn't make them squint their eyes. And somebody says, well, you know, I don't ever want to do that because we're supposed to be drawing people in. Well, they need to pay closer attention to verse 21 of John 3, that some do what is true, some want that light. Some realize that their sins are self-destructive, And they want to come out and get it all exposed and confess it and deal with it and move forward. And those are the ones that are attracted to Jesus, although the light can be harsh sometimes.
0: Yeah, nobody likes to come to the realization or to be reminded that they are wrong about something. No. Or that they are living, because people get so upset if you tell them that something they do is wrong. And all of a sudden, they go into this defensive mode of, well, how can you tell me? You know what I'm doing is wrong. What are you doing? You know. What? Well,
1: there's a word for that st- that sting, and it's called shame. Yeah. Shame, by definition, does not feel good. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes to be ashamed, but it's mm-hmm. an important part of the transformation that Christ brings as light. It's mm-hmm. an exposing light. And verse 24 of John 8 brings that out, where he said, "No, not verse 24." Uh, twenty-six. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare it to the world that what I've heard from him. So he has much to judge. You, you, everybody wants to look at Jesus with a different picture in mind. He didn't judge. He didn't judge people. And we look at the incident with the adulterous woman. He didn't judge. But he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, I have much to judge. That's the exposing light. Number two, Mm -hmm. illuminating light. Namely, he is illuminating God. Jesus came to earth to show us what God was like. And before he came, we had hints of the righteousness of God. And, of course, there's a lot in the Old Testament that tells us about the nature of God. All aspects of his personality and character. Mm -hmm. But Jesus came in flesh and really showed us who God was. And what's really interesting about the Gospel of John is every time John describes Jesus as light, he ties into that the idea that if you see Jesus, you see the Father. Let me illustrate really really quickly. In John chapter 1, as you brought up a while ago, verse 4, in him was light, and the light was the life of men. And in that same chapter, John says in verse 18... No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So he says, Jesus is light, and he makes God known. That's John 1. Mm -hmm. Now, in John 8, verse 12, he describes Jesus as light again. I am the light of the world. And then look at what he says in verse 19. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So there it is again. And he does it one more time. In chapter twelve, verse
0: forty-five. Chapter twelve, forty-five. Yeah, I got Whoever lost. sees me sees him who sent me. Obviously, talking about. Yeah, his but I, I
1: meant to read. Um, where's the light part? Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's up here in I, verse forty-six. Okay, chapter twelve, verse forty-six. He's described as light again. I have come into the world as light. Mm-hmm. So there it is. Same as eight, twelve, 12, and 1, 4. And then in verse 45, he says, Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Yeah. So it's the same thing. There's a pattern here. When he describes Jesus as light, he also ties into that the fact that if you see Jesus, you see the Father. Yeah. So he has an illuminating quality as well, which is also part of his being light. Uh, mm-hmm. He shows us the Father. What's the third one?
0: Well, I think it's the fact that you look at Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus calls us the light of the world. So if Jesus is the light that kind of illuminates uh, righteousness and shows you God, really, I guess, illuminates God for people, if we're followers of Jesus, we should be doing that as well. And that's exactly what Jesus says. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a light or a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So just as Christ came and people when they saw Christ could see God, they should be able to see Christ in us, and by uh, you know, by seeing Christ they should be seeing God as well. We are representatives, you know, as many of us that wear the name Christian, that wear the name of Christ, we are representative of Christ. And like it or not, and you know, people say this all the time, but people see you, what you do, what you say, how you act, they're going to assume that that is, a lot of them will assume that that is what Christ teaches. You know, there are people on on TV, people all over the place, like this guy Joel Osteen that you mentioned People see what he proclaims about Christ, and he proclaims to be a Christian. So whatever he says, people assume those are the teachings of Christ. And a lot of them we would disagree with. A lot of them are not teachings of Christ. But that still doesn't change the fact that there are thousands of people that think that they are because of the name the guy wears and the name that he invokes when he speaks. And so I think when it comes back to us in our light. We need to be very careful about the things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we teach, and make sure that they are in line with the Father, the right Father that we're going to be following, and not the other follower that Jesus mentions in chapter 8, yeah, or chapter it's 9. Not,
1: it's not our light, it's His light.
0: Right. Reflected so, off of us. So right. that's the third point, is reflected light.
1: Yeah. So... It's uh, exposing light, illuminating light, and reflected light. That's the light we're reading about in John 8: nine. Illustrated through the miracle of his giving sight to the blind man. And remember, we talked about these signs, these miracles, as living parables. So think of it that way. He illustrated what he taught in chapter nine. Well, that's all the time that, that we have. There are a number of ways that you can keep in touch with what we're doing. Uh, We mentioned Twitter at the opening of the podcast. Our Twitter handle is The66Podcast. You can email Andrew at akingsley at com. me at dkaiser at com. Our website is the66.net. 66 66 is a number. And uh, that's pretty much it right now. Really the best
0: way to stay up to date is either subscribe on iTunes or if you're not on iTunes, get on Twitter, subscribe time we tweet out it's usually about that episode
1: yep and uh leave us a review if you don't mind it Can be a negative review if that's what you want to do but a positive one would be great five stars and a great you know message there and gets us up in the i don't know how it works but people can find us better So uh, thanks for listening and tuning in. We're going to look at John 10 next, next time and hope that you'll be able to join us.